Thank you for downloading the sermon podcast of Calvary Chapel of Mercer County. Enjoy the message. All right, well, uh, you have plenty of time. You looked, found Matthew chapter 8, correct? Well, that's where we are. Now, Matthew chapter 8, as I said last time we were together, we only looked at four verses last time, uh, but Matthew chapter 8 comes right after, new section of the book, it comes right after the Sermon on the Mount. And we talked about that famous sermon. We spent some time looking at it. And you may recall that in the sermon, Jesus was sharing, this is what it's going to mean to be a Christian. You say you want to follow me, you're called to follow me. Well, this is what that is going to look like. So he spent all of those chapters, three chapters. We spent 10 weeks considering those things. Then Jesus comes down to the bottom of that mountain. And Luke, in the parallel passage to what we looked at last time, he says that a man that was full of leprosy approaches Jesus and says, Lord, if you're willing, you can make me clean. Now, I told you last week, I, share, I decided not to put an image of a person full of leprosy. It's pretty gross. It's hard to look at and all of that. But I encourage you, you might want to go on Google and look it up. Did anybody look up an image of a person full of leprosy? Thank you. We have now five total people that, that did that. All right, extra credit work. Everyone complains when they fail the class, and I gave you extra credit opportunity. Nobody took it, all righty? But uh, it is something to look at. So if you would like to redeem yourself and be a good student, look it up today. All right, go home, look up a Google image of it. I can tell who here is doing it right now on their phones because of your facial expression. You're going to be shocked a little bit, but it's something to look at. And the reason why, I think it is probably worth your time. Maybe I should have put it up there is because here is a person full of leprosy. The nose would be gone. The ears, tips of the ears would be gone. The fingertips uh, would be gone. Toes, all that kind of stuff. The face is full of, it looks almost like it had been burned of some sorts. If you think of a log that has been in the fire and you get all those little black, like little pieces of wood or whatever, that's almost what the face begins to look like. And here's this guy, and then it's like blistery and, it's just, it's hard to look at. So go ahead and look at it at some point in time. Uh, and this guy now comes up to Jesus, stands right in front of him. What's the crowd do? They, no doubt, they start kind of backing away from this guy. And Jesus doesn't do one of these, but instead he walks right to the guy or lets the guy walk right to him. And then he reaches out and he touches the guy. It's an amazing miracle because it's not just a physical healing, but the guy is immediately physically healed. All of the extremities have grown back or whatever it may be. All of the blisters are gone that he goes down to have himself pronounced clean at the temple. It's a remarkable miracle physically, but it's also a great miracle emotionally, if you will, in the guy's life. Because Jesus doesn't run from him, but rather approaches him, touches him, and heals the guy. And Jesus is now immediately thrust back into ministry here, like uh, healings and all of that now that he has come down from the mountain. Now, the next account that we begin in verse 5, it points out, it starts, when he entered Capernaum. And so it points out that he heads into this village called Capernaum. Now, Capernaum in that day, they would refer to it as a city. We would have referred to it as a village. It was relatively small, maybe 100 people or so that live in this particular village. It was located on the northern shores of the Sea of Galilee. Now, we don't know exactly where Jesus preached his Sermon on the Mount. We have some ideas, and people suspect certain things. What we can say for this, he did not preach it in Capernaum. 
because there is no mount in the area of Capernaum. If you think of the Sea of Galilee, so that's the one reason, um, because it says he goes into Capernaum after the healing. The second one is there are no mountains there at Capernaum. And so the Sermon on the Mount happened around that area. Now, we have a photo. When we go to Israel, we always go to Capernaum. Let me show you this photo. Look at that. Who wants to go with us? Look how beautiful that is. Holy mackerel. All right, this is the Sea of Galilee. These shores are Capernaum here. If you look on the right side of the picture, you can see that there are mountains there. And if you look on the left side, that there are mountains. And then they, the water flows southward. So we're on the north end of the Sea of Galilee. It flows down, southward down into what would become the Jordan River, right where those mountains sort of open up there. That leads down to the Jordan River and eventually down to Jerusalem. And it's a very beautiful place, um, the Sea of Galilee is. And so we go, we spend uh, half of a day there. We teach, we do a lot of the teachings that Jesus did there. So it is indeed just a very, very beautiful place. Capernaum, if you think of the Sea of Galilee, remember this about Israel. Israel is divided up really into three regions. There's in the north, the Galilee region. In the middle, you might say the Samaria, the region of Samaria. And then in the south, Judea. And it's in Judea that you find Jerusalem and the desert and, and all of these things here. If you think of Galilee in the north as a clock, then Capernaum is right around 12 on the clock. It's at the top of the Sea of Galilee. Uh, and that's what that picture was there. Capernaum was the hub of Jesus's ministry activity when he was in the Galilee region. Nazareth, you know, Jesus of Nazareth, that's also up in the Galilee region. Capernaum around 12, uh, Nazareth around 9, if you will, on the clock. And it's a little more inland. It's not right on the Sea of Galilee. But Jesus left Nazareth when he got into ministry. So you think of him kind of growing up there, living his life there. But when he began to minister, he moved from Nazareth to Capernaum that we read in the scriptures. Capernaum is mentioned 16 times in the, in the Bible, the New Testament. And every one of those times are in one of the four Gospels. And we learn a few things about Capernaum. It's like I said, Jesus is home when he was ministering. Jesus regularly taught in the city of Capernaum. He would go into their synagogue that was there and he would teach uh, as a rabbi regularly. Uh, we read that in three different places in three different Gospels. And then we also learn this, and this is perhaps the most sad about the city. Despite the fact that Jesus is there in the city, living his life, interacting with people down at the deli and the grocery store and the gas station and all those things, despite the reality of that, and despite the fact that he taught in their synagogue regularly, what we learn about the city of Capernaum is that the people did not receive Jesus as Messiah. There was something about the familiarity of the guy down the street that just caused people to not buy in to what it was that he was selling. Now, of course, we know that Jesus had some disciples in Capernaum. It seems there's people that traveled with him. We also can suspect that some converted there, but overwhelmingly, Capernaum is referred to in Matthew 11 as an unrepentant city, as some of the other cities there are listed as well. And I think Capernaum is a good picture of folks in our day that grow up in and around the church, that they're around Jesus all the time, all of their life perhaps, every Sunday pretty much, they've been at church, and yet they cease to be impacted by Jesus. They see signs of his working, 
They hear his teaching, and yet for whatever reason, they have never been impacted by him eternally. And, and what's sad about that is others that come to Capernaum, so to speak, they are eternally impacted. They're moved by his work. They're moved by his teachings, and their heart is open to receive him as Messiah. And yet those that have heard it, yeah, I heard that every day since I was a little kid, they're not moved. And that's very sad. And, you know, today, I think in here, that may describe some of us. Some of us come to church because our wife brings us or our husband brings us. And so we go. We don't want any trouble at home. Some of us come to church because we go to the diner after and it's really good food or something like that, overpriced and the portions are too big, but it's worth it. And so we go, and that's, that's what brings us to church. Some of us come because we're kids, and mom and dad would yell at us if we didn't come. And we've been doing that for years, and yet Jesus has not impacted our hearts. And if that describes you in one way or another, then I would just encourage you, force yourself to get past the familiarity of Jesus and look at him in a fresh way. I may even encourage you, pick up, if you do read your Bible, but you cease to be moved by your Bible, pick up a different translation, different version of the Bible, so that you're kind of reading the words in a fresh way again. And look past the familiarity and come back to the place where you allow the work that Jesus did and the teachings that Jesus made to really impact your heart in a fresh way. You know, I'll, I'll pose this question. Are you going to heaven when you die? Now, a lot of people answer that, yeah, I, I hope so. I think I, I, think I might. Yeah, I should. That's my goal. You know, that kind of thing. If you honestly can't answer that question with, you better believe I'm going to heaven when I die. Absolutely, I'm going to heaven when I die. Then you should be concerned about yourself and the condition of your soul because you can know for certain. And if there is some doubt, then I'd encourage you, look at a fresh way, in a fresh way, at what Jesus did. Well, that's our intro, designed to get you to Matthew chapter 8, give you a little bit of time to get there. Let's read the, from verses 5 through verses 13. It says this, Now, when Jesus entered Capernaum, a centurion came forward to him, appealing to him, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. And he said to him, Well, I'll come and I'll heal him. But the centurion replied, Lord, I'm not worthy to have you come under my roof. Just say the word and my servant will be healed. For I too am a man under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does this. And when Jesus heard this, he marveled. And he said to those who followed him, truly, I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. I tell you, many will come from the east and the west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And to the centurion, Jesus said, Go, let it be done to you, for you as you have believed. And the servant was healed at that very moment. Now the passage begins with Jesus entering the city of Capernaum that I mentioned to you, and he encounters as it says, a centurion. Now, a centurion was a Roman commander who was given charge of a company of a hundred men, as hundred cent centurion there. You can see that sort of in the root of the word. And in first century Israel, a centurion would be assigned a particular village or a group of village 
villages that were in proximity to one another. And along with his 100 men, they would keep law and order in those occupied villages. They were sent by the empire of Rome to keep charge of these subjects, in this case, the Jewish people. One thing that's interesting to note is this. Roman soldiers and Roman commanders had a reputation historically of a pretty negative reputation. They were a pretty difficult bunch of people. They were tough. They were no nonsense. They weren't always the most upstanding individuals in society historically. In the Bible, we are introduced to seven centurions, seven different guys that serve in that particular role. And every time we are introduced to them, they're a good, quality, upstanding individual of society. So it's just kind of interesting how historically they have this reputation, but the picture we're given in the New Testament is overwhelmingly very, very positive. The Roman military in general was not very well received by the Jewish people. And their animosity for the soldiers was regularly demonstrated, demonstrated to the level where you can kind of show them you don't like them without kind of going overboard where you're going to get in trouble for showing you don't like him. But them, but the Jews had great animosity. And similarly, the Roman soldiers, they weren't too fond of the Jewish people. They saw the Jews as kind of backwoods people living in backwoods villages. And it was a lousy assignment as a Roman to have to be here. And so they didn't like the Jewish people either. So as you can imagine, there's a tension between the two sides of people. There's also a racial prejudice between the two sides of people. In particularly, the Jewish people were pretty racially prejudiced against the Gentile Roman people, and they let it come out. They made it very clear. So the Romans looked at the Jews as primitive, uneducated, and unrefined, and the Jews looked at the Romans, who were Gentiles, essentially as dogs. Not cute little Fluffy, who's home at your house, or what's the dog's name? Sammy. Not cute little Sammy, home at your house, but rather sort of a dirty, ravenous scavenger beast that you wish you could do something to get rid of. That's what the Jews saw the Romans as. And so that's why this account that of Jesus healing the centurion's servant is so, so significant. Now, Jesus probably healed hundreds of people. We read in uh, Matthew chapter 4, 23, that he healed all manner of disease and all manner of sickness. Lots of people are coming. And yet, despite that fact, these are the accounts that Matthew begins giving personal examples of here in Matthew chapter 8. First, a leper, then a Gentile, and then finally, a woman. That's the people that the Jews had great disdain for. The lepers, the Gentiles, and the females. And so the leper was an untouchable who they said was judged by God and given up on, up on by man. The Gentile was a dog, thought by most Jews and taught by most rabbis that Gentiles were good for nothing but to fuel the fires of hell. How's that for a viewpoint of people? That's how they looked at the Gentiles. And women were considered nothing more than conduits for those that, conduits for those that really mattered, men. And so these are the three people that... Uh, Matthew decides to begin giving personal examples of Jesus entering in and touching their lives, speaking healing power into their lives and setting these people free uh, from their infirmities or whatever it may be. Do you think 
that both Jesus and Matthew are trying to challenge the established kind of norms of society by sharing these particular stories at the very forefront of the work that Jesus is doing. Certainly so. That's their purpose, Matthew's purpose here. Remember, we don't have every single thing that Jesus has ever done in the Gospels. We, in the case of Matthew, he's trying to prove something to the Jewish people. So these are the stories that he selected. I think it's telling that he selected a leper, a Gentile, and a female to begin giving personal accounts of. Well, anyway, you have this centurion, and he comes to Jesus. Now, if you read the parallel passage in Luke chapter 7, what you will discover is that the centurion didn't actually come to Jesus, but that he sent representatives for him. Either way, the point is this, that someone came to Jesus on behalf of this centurion to get healing for the centurion's servant. And he comes to the Lord, he petitions him, they petition him and says, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. Well, I think we learned three things now about this centurion in this passage. The first one, and from Luke 7, the first one is this. As I said, centurions have a reputation for being hard, uncaring, no-nonsense sort of guys. Roman soldiers were a dime a dozen. Actually, Roman soldiers were slaves assigned to this particular task. You're my slave, you're going to work on the farm. You're my slave, you're going to be a soldier. They were slaves. The practice was, it was legal and common that if your soldier, your slave, fell ill and was sort of holding up the rest of the group, they just put that slave to death and got another one. And so it's pretty significant that not only does he not put this guy to death, he doesn't just say, well, take a little bit of time off and get better, but he actually goes out of his way to petition for what is normally just thrown away to be healed. That tells us a little bit about this centurion. He's a guy who, takes, who cares about others and takes action based on that concern for others. The second thing, we know that, as I mentioned, the Romans and the Jews didn't get along really well. But what we know about this centurion is that he treated the Jews with respect and kindness. And as a result, he was well thought of by the Jewish people. And that's not in the Matthew passage, but it is in Luke chapter 7. Let me read a couple verses. It says this in Luke 7. When they came to Jesus, that's the religious elders, they pleaded with him earnestly saying, he's worthy to have you do this for him. For he loves our nation and he is the one who built us our synagogue. All right, so he's a guy that cares about the Jews and is well thought of by the Jews. Now when it says he built us our synagogue, that doesn't mean that he's out there with hammer and nails, but what it means is that he oversaw the construction of the Jews' synagogue there in the city of Capernaum. And what that means is he made sure that the project, project had proper funding so that it could come to completion. Now we have a photo. This is a photo from when we went to Israel of what is standing today of the synagogue that was there in Capernaum. Now, Mark, you took this one, right? And you didn't doctor it in any way, did you? Nah, okay. Anyway, I told the first group you didn't doctor it at all because Mark lied to me. Uh, but anyhow, beautiful, beautiful site. This is in Capernaum. We go there. We go up front. We teach. And we imagine where some of the, some of the other folks that had taught up there before. Now, this synagogue, based on the type of stone and the type of construction, archaeologists know that this synagogue was built in the 200s of B.C., uh, excuse me, A.D., so 200s of the Common Era. That wouldn't have been when Jesus was alive. If you go around the side of this um, archaeological find, 
they have unearthed uh, below the, the ground surface, and you see a different type of stone. It's a really dark black stone. That was from the first century. And that would have been the synagogue that this man that we're looking at here in Matthew chapter uh, 8 and Luke chapter 7, that would be the synagogue that he commissioned to be built. That would also be the synagogue that Jesus attended and that Jesus went to the front of and taught from. And so it's a pretty significant find archaeologically. And so we go there, we spend some time there, we, lo we look at the scripture and, and the examples and the stories that occurred there. It, it's a great place. I love going to Capernaum. It's a beautiful um, place as well as that other picture I showed to you of the shores of Capernaum as well. Now, here is the centurion. As the centurion and as a Roman soldier, one of his responsibilities would have been to collect taxes for the Roman Empire and to send it back. And we spend a lot of time, whether it's a tax collector or a Roman soldier or whatever, they were given a number. You need to collect 20% from everybody. They could collect 30%, 40%, 50%. They had to collect that minimum and send that back to Rome. Anything else they collected was for themselves. And so the practice amongst the Roman soldiers typically was to tax the people heavily, keep the money for themselves, and buy food and drink and nice accommodations to live in and, and spend it on themselves. So again, this is telling that this Roman soldier doesn't follow that common practice and instead, he takes the money, which could be his, which he could benefit off of, and instead he pours it back into the community and builds for them a synagogue. A synagogue he's not going to go in to worship. He's a Gentile. He's never going to go in there to worship, and yet he builds that for them. That's the type of guy that he is. And it's the reason why in the Luke passage they say, and I think in Matthew, that he is worthy to have you do this for him. So that's the second thing we learn about this guy. The third thing is he is a great and powerful guy. We know that. He's probably the most powerful man in Capernaum for two reasons. The Roman Empire is behind him, and also a bunch of guys with big swords are behind him as well. So he's the most powerful guy in Capernaum, and despite that, he humbles himself. He petitions a peasant of the village who has become this itinerant preacher guy, Jesus, and he humbly petitions him to heal his servant. He humbly petitions Jesus to do something that won't benefit him at all. It's not going to help him. It's not like his kid is sick. It's not like he's sick. It's one of his slaves. It's one of his throwaway items that he could easily discard and get a new one to replace. But he petitions Jesus. He humbles himself to have Jesus heal that particular guy. He's quite a guy. Now notice in verse 8, Jesus responds positively i think it's verse seven positively to the request and he says to him i will i'll come and i will heal him he says now you might read that and you, you might kind of go quickly through it and think well of course jesus would go jesus is a good guy and all you need to do is ask and he'll come the reality is for jesus to go to the home of this gentile was to go against every cultural norm of the relationship between the Jews and the Gentiles. Jews and Gentiles, as much as possible, they didn't mix with one another. And Jews certainly didn't go into the home of a Gentile. It wasn't against the law to go into the home of a Gentile, but it was against Jewish custom to do so. And it seems to me that the centurion kind of anticipates that, that here's Jesus, here's this rabbi, he's never going to come into my home because the 
the rabbis, the Jewish people don't. And so he sends, it seems he anticipates that custom. Notice what he says in verse 8. But the centurion replied, Lord, I'm not worthy to have you come under my roof, is, which is what the Jews thought. But only say the word and my servant will be healed. Healed. And again, here's the most, the arguably most powerful man in town humbling himself and saying to a peasant that he's not worthy to have that guy enter into his home. I suspect to some effect he's trying to be sensitive to Jesus as a popular rabbi and what Jesus would probably think. Again, showing he's an others-centered person willing to lower himself on behalf of other people. Now, we know Jesus would gladly go into the guy's house. Jesus had no problem healing, certainly, stopping what he was doing in healing, but also at the same time defying cultural norms and convention. And so this guy doesn't quite know Jesus well enough yet and seeking to be sensitive. He said, no, 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 you don't have to come. Just say the word and I know that it will be done. Now, he doesn't know Jesus well enough to know that Jesus wouldn't want to come into his house, but he does know Jesus well enough to know that Jesus could heal and that he could do so, not with some hocus pocus, but he could do so even with a word. And so, notice the centurion says, look, I know that you could heal with just a word. He says this, I too am a man, verse 9, under authority, soldiers under, with soldiers under me. I say to one, go when he goes, to another, come and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. He's a guy with power. He has authority. He understands how power and authority works. And as a man with authority, he speaks and it is carried out. The, the phrase that keeps coming to my mind is from Ten Commandments. Older, younger people, you all know what I'm talking about. Old people, Scott, you'll know. Uh, <laughs> where, it's, where it says, where Yul Brenner would say, so let it be written, so let it be done. You know, he would say it. That's the idea here. This guy knows, you speak the word, and it's carried out. You may not physically be the guy that carries out the command, but it'll get carried out because of your authority and in your power. And in the mind of this centurion, in the same way that he could dictate a command and be confident the command would be carried out, he is demonstrating that he believes that Jesus could speak a word of command and he would know that it would be carried out. In his mind, it's very logical. And it is very logical. But at the same time, it's very trusting. And his statement says something about how he views and thinks of Jesus. And Jesus is very impressed by it. Look at verse 10. Jesus heard this. He marveled. And he said to those who followed him, Truly I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. No, I jotted a little note here. Uh-oh, happy feeling is gone. Because everything was kind of moving along nicely. And do you notice what Jesus says here? He talks about those that are going to be essentially thrust into hell where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. Let's point out a couple of things here about this. First, notice Jesus commends the man. The passage actually says that he marvels at the man's faith. Can you imagine what it would take to cause the creator and sustainer of the universe to marvel at something, this man's faith accomplishes that. His simple confidence in Jesus' ability to heal without any hocus-pocus, without any magic acts, but simply with a word 
his simple uh, belief in that, confidence in that, it impresses the Lord. This guy believes who Jesus is and what Jesus can do. And the passage says Jesus is impressed by that. And he, he says it's worthy of praise. It's worthy of acknowledgement. And so he does that. Now, in praising the Gentile, at the same time, Jesus throws a little dig at the Jews there. The Jewish leaders were the ones that have come, according to the Luke passage, to say, you should do this for this guy. He's a good guy. They assumed they were all good guys. And this guy, he's not so bad. He's a good guy, Lord. And Jesus is kind of turning it all on its, its end here. He says, yeah, the Gentile's a good guy. You guys aren't. And so he says, truly I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. Now the Jews are going to hear this and think, what? Look, buddy. They may not say this, but they're going to say, look, buddy, this guy may be a good guy, but let's not forget, he's still a Gentile. We're Jewish people. We're sons of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. In us are all the promises of God. This guy is just a Gentile. And by the way, we're the religious leaders. You're just some itinerant preacher that we haven't quite figured out yet. That's the thinking that is going on. That's why I say happy feeling is gone. Because this is a direct confrontation of the Jewish people. Jesus is saying, this guy has greater faith than all of these sons of Israel, all of these Jewish people. And in saying that, he offends their cultural and their racial presuppositions. But he goes on and he adds more. Remember info commercials? But wait, there's more. Well, there's more here. He says, I tell you, many will come from east and west. Now that refers to outside of Israel, where all the Gentile land is. Many are going to come from east and west to sit down at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they are the patriarchs of the Jewish faith. The Jewish people understand, they recognize that in heaven, Abraham will be in heaven. Isaac will be in heaven. Jacob will be in heaven. And they, in their thinking, they began to develop this mindset that all of the Jews will be in heaven. But here Jesus is saying, Many are going to come from east and west. Many Gentiles are going to sit there in heaven. Now, you might hear that and you might think, okay, all right, I guess there'll be Gentiles in heaven as well. But then he adds, and many of the Jews will not be there in heaven. Many of the sons of Israel, I think is the term, or sons of the kingdom will not be there. And that just blew the mind of these Jewish people that are saying there. The Gentiles will recline there with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob but many of the Jews won't even get in to heaven. Now they either said it or they definitely thought it, and they certainly talked about it when they went back home. Now the Jewish leaders are probably thinking, what? And I think Jesus is probably thinking, you heard what I said. And I said it for a reason. That's why I say the happy feeling is gone. The common Jewish teaching of the day, despite the fact that this is a good guy, the common Jewish teaching of the day was that Gentiles were good for nothing but to fuel the fires of hell. What a horrible thing to think about somebody. And that's how the Jews looked at the Gentile people, saying that they had an opportunity, some teaching, that they had an opportunity, they had rejected, and now they're good for nothing more than to fuel the fires of hell. And now here's Jesus saying, that the sons of Israel are going to fuel the fires of hell. You see how he's turned everything upside down? Shocking what he is saying here. And again, these are fighting words. 
And these are statements like this is what put, began to put Jesus at odds with the religious leaders of the day. But regardless of the fact that it would put him at odds with the religious leaders of the day, it's something that needed to be said. Because people, some of these Jewish people, there will be Jews in heaven. I, I don't want to give that impression. But not just because they're Jewish, but because they receive the gift of God's Messiah that he has given to us. That's why they'll be in heaven. The same way if you're a Gentile, well, you'll be in heaven because you received the gift of God's Messiah. But people were living their entire lives and either teaching or being taught something that was leading them straight to hell. Or to use the phrase that Jesus says here, outer darkness. And that's serious. And somebody better say something about it. And so that's what Jesus does. And you know, in our day, I don't think it is any different. Don't, don't we have people teaching and being taught the same idea? Has it not been incorrectly ingrained into our thinking as a culture that we are okay as a people? How many people think they will get into heaven because they're Americans? We're not savages. We're not beasts of a people. Of course we're going to go to heaven. We're Americans. There are others that will say, well, I go to church every week, and so I'm okay. I go almost every week, except for my vacation or something like that. Surely I'll be getting into heaven. There are some that will even say something to this effect, perhaps in this room. I'll go to heaven because I attended Calvary Chapel. Calvary Chapel is a good Bible-believing church, and I went there every week and put up with that fella. And so I'll get into heaven as well. And I would say this. If you're here today trusting in your nationality, trusting in your culture, or trusting in your connection to Calvary Chapel or to any other church that is out there, and you're trusting in anything but Jesus, then you need to hear the message that Jesus is presenting in this encounter. It's in Christ alone that our hope is found. Not in any of those other things. That's an important message, I think, that needs to be said, even if it is a bit offensive for some to hear. Now, you have this tiff that is hanging out there in the air, and Jesus then kind of moves on from the, the little tension, and he says to the centurion, verse excuse me, verse 13, he says, Go, let it be done for you as you have believed. And the servant was healed at that very moment. Now, that's the story of the centurion servant, the account of the centurion servant. We have another one I want to look at. Just two verses more, verses 14 through 15. It says, Now when Jesus entered Peter's house, he saw his mother-in-law lying sick with a fever. And he touched her hand, and the fever left her. And she rose, and she began to serve him. And again, if you go with us to Israel, we're going to go next year. Uh, we will make our way to Capernaum. We'll sit on the shores there of Capernaum. We'll go to the synagogue. And as with the synagogue, archaeologists have unearthed in Capernaum remnants of the homes that were there in the first century. So I think we again have a picture. And if you notice in the picture, you see how all of, the pic all of those things in the forefront is a very dark stone. That's first century building. I know these buildings would have been a lot taller than this, but this is sort of the foundation level of each of these homes, almost all of them sort of connected 
and intertwined with one another. You can look over at the synagogue there. That's a side view of the synagogue. And you see it's a different color stone altogether. And it's a different type of architecture. That's a different era. And so these are first century homes. If you look over on the top right corner where there's that tall evergreen tree, there's additional homes that are over there in this village as well. One of those homes was Peter's home. It's kind of cool. It's not glowing or anything like that. But the fact is one of those homes is more than likely Peter's home. And that would be the place that this particular account that we are reading of here. Again, Mark, I think you took this one as well. All right. Yes. Yay, Mark. Let's clap for Mark. All right. Anyhow. Um, so here we are now. We're in Capernaum. We said it's Peter's home there in Capernaum. Here's an interesting thing. In the book of John, chapter one, it tells us that uh, Peter was from the city of Bethsaida. Capernaum and Bethsaida are two different places altogether. And so if Capernaum is his home, what's he got, like a, a second home or something like that? No. What it means is, is that he kind of grew up in Bethsaida. He encountered Jesus initially down there or near there where he was working. And then he relocated and moved to Capernaum. And I don't know why he did that, but I can guess why he did that. Because Jesus relocated from Nazareth to Capernaum and began to set up ministry shops, so to speak. And it seems that Peter said, well, if he's going to be up there, I want to be near him. I want to learn from him. I want to sit at his feet. And so Peter picked up and he moved his whole family, his business, everything that he knew. And he went and he lived up there in the city of Capernaum. I think that is significant. Because here's a guy that was doing to do, willing to do whatever to be able to sit and learn of Jesus. And that's really significant. And, and I tell you this, I've been that place in my life as well. And I'm sure you have been in that place. And I've read many biographies and I know many Christians that are essentially, they come to the place where Jesus says, hey, I'm headed over there. You're welcome to come if you would like. And you come sort of to the end of the carpet and you're like, yeah, if I go over there, that's just going to affect too many things I can't. I'll stay here. And every time you come back into this area, I'll check in with you again. But I'm unwilling to take that step of faith and go over there. Peter takes the step of faith. And he goes and he lives in Capernaum. And I sure am glad that he did. Because Peter, even it says of him, he became a rock in the church in a sense. That testimony that he has and the way in which the Lord used his life. One might guess none of that would have ever happened if he just stayed back in Bethsaida and waited for Jesus to stop in every now and again. So I'll let you chew on that. Let the Lord speak to your heart about that and what that might mean for you in your life, particularly in the coming year. Now, we have another point in passing here. The first one was that Peter had a home there in Capernaum. The second one is that he had a mother-in-law there in Capernaum. And the reason why I bring this up is because tradition would have us believe that Peter was the church's first pope. And the tradition in the Catholic Church is that the pope or the cardinal or the bishop or the priest, that they were not allowed to marry. But here we have an example in the scripture which clearly indicates that Peter was indeed married. As I was saying, sadly I would say, the Catholic Church, and remember the word Catholic, it means universal. And so for a long period of history, there was only one church, the church. And it, it was called the Catholic Church or the Universal Church because it applied to believers everywhere. But then we had the Protestant Reformation and different forms of the church kind of began to develop or whatever. But the Catholic Church has for 1,600, 1,700 years taught 
that the bishop, priest, cardinal, and pope had to remain unmarried and celibate. And the reason I bring it up here now, I'm not in the Catholic Church. You guys aren't attending the Catholic Church apparently either, unless you're sneaking out there or something like that on the weekends. But I bring it up because of this, because despite the fact that the Scripture makes clear that who they refer to as the first pope was indeed married, they teach otherwise. And again, it's really no big deal to me, except for these two reasons. Number one, please don't say one that the Bible says one thing when it clearly says something else. That's bad. Don't do that. Okay. And secondly, if you want to pass off that priests shouldn't be married so that they can focus their intention instead on the church and, and all of that, that's fine. If that's your philosophy, that's your view, and it works for you, great. But don't teach a doctrine of men as a doctrine of God. That's a dangerous thing to do, and it's a mistake. And I think it's a mistake that the Catholic Church has made. And to be quite frank with you, I think it's a cause of many of the problems that the Catholic Church has had over the last century and probably beyond that as well. Anyway, think about that as well. You can chew on that as well. Now let's take a look at the account. Again, the verse says, Jesus went into the house, saw Peter's mother-in-law laying sick with a fever, and he touched her, and the fever left her, and she rose and began to serve. Now, we've seen this in chapter 8. You have a guy that was full of leprosy, you have a man that was paralyzed, and you have a lady that has a fever. If I had to create a scale of the severity of those infirmities, I would put the fever at the bottom. Nobody likes to have a fever or whatever, but you have fever, maybe paralysis, full-blown leprosy. It seems to me like it goes in that particular order. And the reason I bring it up is, despite the fact that it's relatively insignificant compared to the problems everybody else is experiencing, Jesus still cares about it. And he goes into this person's house, he touches her hands, and he heals her. Now, I would also add this. In the Luke chapter 4 account, Luke says that the woman, not just that she had a fever, but that she had a high fever. And Luke was a doctor, a medical doctor. And many times in Luke's gospel, he points out details that perhaps the average person wouldn't pay attention to. But he points out that she has a high fever. That means that she was really, really sick. Historians tell us that in first century northern Israel, the area of Galilee, that there was a malaria outbreak in that time, at the time of Jesus here, right around 30 AD, and so on. And so it seems that perhaps with this high fever, she may have a case of malaria there. And seeing her in this weakened condition, hearing the appeals of family and friends, Jesus touches this woman, and, is, and she's healed. And notice, she's healed. She's really healed. Now, and I say that because she jumps up, and she begins serving other people, all the guests that have arised. A few weeks back, we came back from Nepal, and somewhere on the airplane or so, I felt fine before, I felt horrible after. Somewhere on the airplane, I got a fever, and I was just dragging, and my face was pale and all this, and Charlotte came to pick us up, and I later found out she asked her husband, what's the matter with that guy? Is he safe to get in the car? He looks terrible, or whatever, and I felt terrible. I don't want to talk to anybody. I want to do. I just want to put my head back, and I got home, and I, I came to my house. My wife's out there, and I'm like, hi, and she's like, oh my gosh, what's the matter with you? I said, I don't know. I don't feel good. And so I went up to my bed, and it was at 10 in the morning, and I fell asleep. And about four hours later, I woke up, and my sheets were soaked. My fever had broken. 
And it was, I was like, oh my gosh, it's like a pool here. This is disgusting. It was rather disgusting, uh, actually. <laughs> and the fever broke, if you will. I was healed of my fever. But I have to tell you, I felt drained for three to four days afterwards. I didn't start feeling good again until Friday. I got home on a Monday, and I was just drained from it because my body had worked so hard to fight the fever, and there was just no energy, no strength, or anything left. I, I'll tell you, I wasn't running around serving all of the people that came over to visit like this lady was. But Jesus does a healing work in her, and he skips up three, four days past the fever and the remnants of the fever, and he heals her, and she gets up, and she begins uh, to serve. And I, I think that's, that's a good thing, by the way. When Jesus heals a person, the fitting response is to begin serving him and other people. And that's what this particular woman, she begins to do. And so I'll pose this at you. Has the Lord touched your life? Has he healed you? You probably weren't sick, but you were spiritually sick. Maybe you were emotionally sick. And Jesus entered into your life and he did a healing work in your life and he's delivered you from your sin. He's delivered you from death. Some of us in this room, he's delivered us from addiction. He's delivered us from a life of uncleanness. He's given us a hope. He's given us a future. If Jesus has touched your life, your fitting response to that is to begin serving him and other people. One person said this, commenting on this. He said, you can always tell when a person has been touched by Jesus because he or she will inevitably begin to minister. When the Lord touches you, you can help but say, to whom can I reach out and help as well? And so I just encourage you, give that some thought. If you're born anew, you're a follower of Christ, you've been forgiven of your sin and cleansed, and you believe that the condition that you once were in, the vast majority of people in our day are in, and if they come to the end of their days in that condition, they will in reality go to the place of outer darkness that Jesus describes where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth, the place we commonly refer to hell. If you really believe that, then shouldn't you in response to what he has done for you begin to do something to help those people as well, ministering and serving? The purpose of the church, we learn in Ephesians chapter 4, is to build the saints up to go out and do the work of the ministry. That's not just one person, a couple of people that pour into the lives of those that attend the church or are part of the church. It's the part of us as a church to build each other up so we can go out and we can serve. And so I'd encourage you, look at your life, look at the work that God has done in your life, ask yourself, is my response to what he has done in my life, is it a fitting response? Or can I get involved a little bit more serving and ministering to him and to other people. Look, I'm not trying to guilt you into doing something because I benefit from it. That way I don't have to set up the chair somebody else will. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm just talking about the proper response to what God has done in your life. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, it feels like hell in here. It is so hot, <laughs> Lord, but we have made it through. And Lord, we thank you for that. Father, we, we do appreciate your work in our lives, Lord. But I, I just look out and I see a lot of these faces. And I know their stories, Lord. And you know every one of our stories. 
Lord, I see so many that were just in the grips of their own sin and selfishness. And Lord, in your mercy, how you sought them out. And you set them free. And Lord, today, Lord, even as we think of our own lives and those that are around us, Lord, we just rejoice in the good work of Jesus in our lives. Lord, you've set us free and you've given us new life. And we rejoice in that truth. Father, I pray that we would have faith like this centurion. Just absolute confidence. Lord, that we would live a life like this centurion. Lord, that we would look beyond ourself and our own needs and our own comforts and we would become concerned and care about the, the needs and comforts, etc., of other people. Lord, I pray that we would, uh, like you do, Lord, we would care for those with the big problems and the little problems. And that we would allow you to move our hearts with compassion. And so, Father, there's a lot to consider here. And again, just how good it is for us to look at Jesus and to see just a remarkable individual that he was and what it must have been like, Lord, to come on the scene. And Father, as uh, longtime believers, many of us are, Lord, we could cease to be wowed by that, but we don't want to be. And so we pray that by your Spirit, you would cause your word to quicken within each of our hearts. That we might be able to see these things in a fresh way again. And just be amazed by who Jesus is and what he has done. We pray in your name. Amen. Thanks again for listening to the sermon podcast of Calvary Chapel of Mercer County. If you would like more information about the church, its ministries, its worship services, or its small groups, please visit ccmercer.com or download the church app to your phone.